Um, <laughs> one of the things we have as a staff, just a very simple little staff handbook. We've started two years ago developing a staff handbook so that we would have some protocol and procedures for certain things. And it's not in the staff handbook. We have a law <laughs> about our staff meetings. And the law is, it's very serious, which is why I call it a law. The law is if you're late to staff meeting and don't say anything and don't tell anyone you're going to be late, if you're late without notice, the law is you have to bring donuts to the next staff meeting. Serious stuff. And uh, so that's the law. So I want to share a hypothetical story. This didn't really happen. But here's a hypothetical situation. Let's say one day Andrew Gordon, you guys know Andrew, does the announcements. Let's say one day Andrew's late to staff meeting and he doesn't tell us that he's going to be late, right? So what's the law say? The, the rule is you bring donuts next week, right? Let's, so let's say one day Andrew's you know, sitting at his chair reading the dictionary or something because that seems like something he would do. And he's reading the dictionary. He's got a cardigan on and PBS on or something like that. And he forgets what time it is. Oh, I'm 10 minutes late to staff meeting. He doesn't say anything. He comes over. I say, oh, Andrew, we're glad you're here. You know next week you have to bring donuts, right? Because that's the rule, right? That's the law. So next week you have to bring donuts. And he's like, okay. But I know, hypothetically, this is not a true story. Hypothetically, I know he does not have enough time in between work and staff meeting. And he doesn't have the spare money to pick up the donuts. So what I do hypothetically, as I pick up the donuts for him and I hand them to him right as we walk into staff meeting together so that he comes in with the donuts, right? So now this didn't really happen. I know you're, you love me right now, but I didn't really do this. <laughs> I wouldn't. Um, but let's say, so let's say that the conclusion Andrew comes to now is, I guess this rule doesn't really matter. Um, uh, you know, I, this doesn't apply. We don't, it doesn't matter next week, right? Next week I can be late. I don't have to say anything. I would say, well, no, I'm not throwing out the rule. We still need the rule, right? We still need the law. I'm not abolishing the law. I've actually just fulfilled the law on your behalf. But the law is still good. It's still necessary. Just because it's been fulfilled doesn't mean it's removed. Does that make sense? So not only so let's say not only do I fulfill the law for Andrew, let's say I also buy him a watch and I give him a Dunkin' Donuts gift card for when he screws up. Right? Okay, I didn't really do this, guys. I appreciate the love. This is not the kind of thing I would do, though. I would be more about the law. So... This is one of my favorite illustrations where I'm the Jesus character. Um, in this illustration, we have not abolished the law. The law has been fulfilled. And then further, through the watch and the gift card, there's empowerment now to fulfill. Does that make sense? Oh, I did get some clap in Columba. All right. We're on the same page now. Now, Jesus, when Jesus was going around teaching... He was saying some new ideas and some fresh things that people had not heard or had not considered. And there was a question about Jesus' relationship to the law. Is, is this guy Jesus throwing out Moses, throwing out the Ten Commandments? 
And as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we're seeing that uh, not only did Jesus not throw out the Ten Commandments, he actually affirmed the Ten Commandments and then doubled down with the Ten Commandments. So um, we're going to look at that a little bit today. We're going to touch on at least two of the Ten Commandments. You guys might remember a few months ago we just finished a 12-week series on the Ten Commandments, all of which was to set the stage for the Sermon on the Mount. So you're going to have to recall some of these commandments that we looked at. But really quickly, uh, Jesus starts this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. He's already done the Beatitudes. He's already talked about being salt and light. He dives then straight into this and his relationship or what he believes about the law, meaning the teachings of Moses and the first five books of the Bible, what we often look to as rules and regulations. Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus states it clearly that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he goes even further and says, not even the smallest letter or even stroke of a pen from the law is going to be taken away. It's all there until the end of time. It's so we're not taking this away. So... I know if you think like me, you, you, you immediately go to, what about this? What about that? So if we still follow the law in the Old Testament, are we allowed to eat shrimp wrapped, wrapped in bacon? I have good news. We are. Here's why. Okay. The law has been established through Moses. It's there, right? The law then has to go through the cross and on the other side of the cross, we examine the law to find out what has Jesus done with the law. So, for instance, the dietary restrictions, like why, don't, why aren't we required to eat kosher? Twice in the New Testament, Jesus declared all food clean. So, there are certain parts of the law that Jesus clarified on the other side of the cross, but there are other parts of the law he didn't clarify, he just said it's still there. Does that make sense? So on the parts where Jesus clarified, we have clarity. On the parts where he didn't clarify, they were already clear. Does that make sense? So whatever Jesus did on the cross to reshape and reconfigure, we take. But if he didn't change it, we're still running with that. Does that make sense? It's kind of like when you get an update on your phone, right? You get an update on your phone you notice it changes some of the settings, some of the functions, some of the operations, but it doesn't change all of them. Some of them are obsolete, some of them are functioning perfectly fine. Through the cross, we got kind of this up, update to the law, and Jesus updated a few things. He didn't change them, he didn't abolish them, he updated them because they were obsolete. But other parts were not obsolete, and they were left as they were. The Ten Commandments were not obsolete, and so he retained them. Does that make sense? So that's why do not commit adultery still applies. That's why do not murder still applies. And these 10 commandments. Now, Jesus says, 
of those who annul or abolish the commandments, he see, he, and those who teach us to annul or abolish the commandments, he says, those people and those teachers shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So if a person thinks we don't have to give any concern for the law, they're still in the kingdom of heaven, but they are misunderstanding this. Does that make sense? This isn't a salvation issue, but it is a, you want to understand the Bible correctly. Um, verse 20, he says this to the crowd, I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That would have probably elicited a collective gulp. Wait, these professional religious people, I have to be better than them to get into heaven? So Jesus wasn't exactly giving them you know, chicken soup for the soul and a pep talk. He was actually saying, hey, wake up. Unless your righteousness is greater than these professional righteous people, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. So if they understood it correctly, they said, I need you, God. Right? Instead of, I'm good. They said, I need you, Jesus. So he's creating in them or provoking in them a need for a savior, which is one of the first things Jesus does in our lives. He shows us our need for a savior. That, that right there is the purpose of the law, to show you your need for a savior. The law is good in that it fulfills that purpose, but the law has never been able to make anyone holy. It's only been able to make you aware it's, it's only been able to wake you up to your need for Jesus, but it's never been able to make you holy, which is why the Old Testament is a pattern of law, then sin, then some more law, then some more sin, then some more law, then some more sin, until we got 613 laws out of it. But no righteous people. All right. Now, we're going to look at three specific issues that Jesus addresses here. Uh, in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, there are six issues he addresses. I'm going to do three today, and Pastor John Eric is going to do three next week. I took the hard ones, I think, <laughs> personally. Um, so, let's, uh, so, let's dive in here. Why not? Jesus starts with this. He says, You have heard the, that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Okay, where he says, You've heard this. Where have we heard this? The sixth commandment. Yeah, the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. So, here's another example of why it's good to have a little Ten Commandment background, because Jesus himself quotes the Ten Commandments. So, you shall not commit murder. If you do, you're liable to the court. In most cases, the punishment for murder was death. I mean, it did depend on some of the circumstances, but in that time, the punishment, because again, when the Ten Commandments were given, these were a wandering nomadic people. They didn't have prisons, right? You can't put people in prison and then move the prison. So they just took you out, okay, in, in many cases. So then he goes on to say he, he doesn't, not only does he not abolish the command, he makes it harder. <laughs> he says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, they're going to get better insults. 
shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So Jesus is saying that anger is essentially murder. So, so what are the connections between anger and murder? So murder is the height or the culmination of attacking another person's dignity. You're taking their decision-making power, you're, you're denying that they're made in God's image, and you are coming 100% and eliminating any dignity or value or worth they have as a human being. And what Jesus is saying is that the kind of anger that causes you to insult and tear down with things like you good for nothing and you fool is essentially the same. You're still attacking the dignity of another person. Now, I don't think Jesus is, this is a situational statement that Jesus is making here. He's not talking about all anger, and I'll explain that in a moment. He's talking about the type of anger that causes you to go after or attack the dignity of another person with insults and tearing them down. Jesus is not talking about all anger. The reason I think that's true is because in Ephesians 4, Paul actually tells us, be angry, but don't sin. So there's permission given to be angry because things happen to us, right? Not only do we get angry, God is at times angry in the Old Testament, right? So anger can't be a sin because God's unable to sin and God was angry. Not only was God the Father angry at times in the Old Testament, in Mark chapter 3, Jesus is angry. I want to look at that story really quick. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and there's a man there that has a disability. His hand is disabled. I don't have this on the screen, but this is Mark chapter 3. It says, Jesus entered into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching Jesus to see if he would heal the man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse Jesus. Jesus said to the man with a withered hand, get up and come forward. And Jesus said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath and to save a life or to kill? But they kept, us, kept silent. So Jesus is essentially, he's in church, basically. He's in the synagogue on, on the Sabbath. And this man comes up with a disability. And Jesus has the ability to heal this man. But he knows they're watching him to see if he's going to do this good deed on the Sabbath. And he looks at the religious leaders, the experts, and he says, is it legal for me to do good on the Sabbath? And you know what they did? They just stayed silent. The obvious answer to that should be, yes, it's legal to do good on the Sabbath, even on a day of rest. It's okay to heal. But they didn't want to say that, so they just kept their mouths silent. And then Jesus' response is in verse 5. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and his hand was restored. So we can actually learn about the type of anger Jesus uses as opposed to the type of anger Jesus confronts from these two stories. Here's what Jesus did with anger. First of all, uh, Jesus was not angry because he got his feelings hurt. He was angry on behalf of another person. He was angry on the behalf of an injustice that was being done to another person, and he defended and restored that person. 
Uh, Jesus' angry, sorry, Jesus' anger was momentary, not long-term. Even in the Old Testament, we read that God's anger is for a moment, but his loving kindness is for a lifetime. The way that anger is supposed to work is that it's momentary. It's temporary. It's not your default emotion. Does that make sense? So Jesus has this temporary anger, again, because the dignity of another person is being attacked. And what does Jesus do with the anger? Does he backhand slap the Pharisees? Does he call them names? No, he actually performs an act of redemption out of anger. That you, you can actually channel your anger into redemptive, restorative work. That's what Jesus did. So is Jesus saying that we can never be angry in Matthew chapter 5? I don't think he's saying that or else he'd be contradicting himself because even he was angry. And Paul permits anger as long as it doesn't lead to sin. What Jesus is saying is the type of anger that is long term and leads to insults, attacking the dignity of another person, calling names, belittling, slandering, that's murder. That's essentially murder because murder is the culmination of attacking another person's dignity and the kind of anger that he's referring to is a smaller version, like a seed form of attacking someone's dignity. Does that make sense? Jesus goes on. Oh, you know what? Let me give you some practical uh, application here before I go on. I don't want to just tell you, don't be angry. I want to help you deal with your anger. Um, if your anger is long-term and like lasts for a while, you might as well start digging this stuff up. So this is something I learned from a guy named Dr. Neil Anderson. He's a Christian biblical counselor. And it, it's helpful because sometimes we don't understand our emotions. We don't, it would be nice if we had some definition and some terms. So he defines anger as uh, signaling a blocked goal. Anger signals a blocked goal. You have a goal, someone or something is blocking you from achieving that goal, so you direct your anger at the thing blocking you from your goal. So if my goal is to get home at 4 o'clock, but it's 4.02 and I'm still sitting in traffic, I have a goal, it's blocked, and I'm angry at everyone in front of me. Right? If I have a goal to get out of debt or pay something off, but I can't because all these extra expenses come up, I'm angry because I have a goal, I'm prevented from achieving the goal, and I'm angry at all the stuff that's blocking me from achieving that goal. So there's a couple things you can do with that. Sometimes you just want to take a deep breath and ask yourself very practically this question. What's my goal? What's blocking it? You probably haven't even given thought to it yet. But if you can identify your goal and identify what's blocking it, you might be able to fix it. If you're sitting in traffic and realize you're really annoyed and put your two to two together and realize the situation, maybe you can get off at the next exit and go around. Or maybe sometimes what you have to do is change your goal. Maybe what you ought to do is say, you know what, okay, I ain't going to be home by four. Instead of being angry about something I can't change, I'm going to change my expectations and my goals to be home by 4.15. Does that make sense? Maybe your expectations should be different. So you can't control other people. If, <laughs> if you're just, you know, we're all very spiritual people here right now, so 
let's say your goal is to get your neighbor to come to church and you invite him, invite him, invite him, but they don't come and you start to get angry. I've invited you five times. Well, you can't control them. So your goal has to change instead of them doing what you want them to do. Your goal has to be, I'm going to continue to invite my neighbor. My goal is I'm going to invite my neighbor once a week. So you have the ability to fulfill that. If you don't, you can only be angry at yourself. So you want to make it so that your goals are things you can fulfill, not stuff that other people can block, if that makes sense. So that's one way to deal with anger is understanding it signals a blocked goal and just working through that process. Now Jesus goes on and he makes a lot of statements here. Um, I'm going to skip this real quick. He says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Okay, where did he say that? The Ten Commandments again, the seventh one. We've got the sixth and the seventh commandment covered in the teachings of Jesus. You shall not commit adultery. And, you know, you might be feeling really good about, I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery. I'm doing okay. And then Jesus goes and says, have you ever been angry? Ugh. And even if you've never been angry, let's try this on for size. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Wow, put that on a pillow. A little Jesus pillow or, you know cut your hand off if it causes you to sin. Jesus. Uh, I mentioned earlier that these teachings are situational but at times they're also hyperbolic. A hyperbole is when you say something that's just outlandish but you're making a point that's strong. So if I say I'm, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Okay, I don't literally want to eat horse meat or a whole horse, I'm just saying I'm hungry, right? So Jesus, it's pretty much universally agreed upon, Jesus is speaking hyperbolically when he says, gouge out your eye and cut off your hand if they cause you to sin. He's not speaking literally here. Now there are plenty of other places where Jesus is speaking literally. This is not one of them. Here's why we know that Jesus is speaking in hyperbole and not literally, because not one of his disciples followed this. We don't have any account of Peter gouging out his eye or cutting off his, you know, Mark cutting off his hand or anything like that. Now, <laughs> there was a guy in the second century named Origen. And Origen was a good disciple of, I mean, this is 150 or 200 years later, but Origen was a Christian, very solid guy. Generally, we like Origen, but Origen did take this literally. Origen was a teacher of the Bible, and he wanted to be able to teach the Bible to women without being even tempted or having any accusation or anything. So Origen castrated himself. And then people painted pictures of it. I don't know why they did that. Origen castrated himself so that he would not fall into lust, and he learned a very difficult lesson. That lust does not reside in your reproductive organs but it's right here. Because he did that and still felt lust and still felt urges, right? And so that's when he realized, 
Yeah, well, I don't know. He realized a lot. I'll back it up a little bit. All right. That's when he and his friends realized this is, the issue really is a heart issue. Uh, you know, you, blind people can feel lust. People without hands can feel lust. People without reproductive organs can feel lust because it's, it's in the heart. In fact, my old pastor, Mike Plunkett, said this, your biggest reproductive organ is your brain. Your biggest sexual organ is your brain. It's, it's all up here, through here, in here. This is where lust and discontentment and sexual desires and things, this is where they live up here, and you can't remove these and stay alive. So Jesus isn't literally saying to start maiming yourself. So what is he saying? He's saying you do need to take this more seriously than you do. You do need to realize that these thoughts and these feelings impact other people, can at times, again, go against the dignity of other people when you begin treating them like objects and not human beings. And that this can have harm on yourself, it can harm other people. Uh, a guy that was in the first service, Justin, came up and he, he suggested a really great application to this principle. Perhaps it's better for you to go without Facebook or Instagram than have those both and go to hell. If those things cause you to sit, like, sin with lust sexually, maybe it's better that you don't have those. If, I mean, if Jesus said, cut off your hand and gouge out your eye, surely deactivating your social media accounts might be better. If that's an issue for you, and it's not an issue for everybody, but if that's an issue for you. Maybe what you need to do is put some sort of software in your computer that blocks or reports that kind of content. And I don't mind telling you, I have that on my computer. Every device I own, phone, tablet, every computer has software on it that if I look at anything sketchy, it immediately sends an email to my wife. You do not want an angry redhead <laughs> saying, what was this website? That, I'll tell you what, I'm still, I'm still relying on the Holy Spirit, but my wife keeps me in line. Um, so if that's what you need, get it. You know what I mean? If you need some software or you need an accountability partner that asks you questions, I have a, that person in my life too. Twice a month we talk. How you doing? Any issues? How can I pray for you? Um, so... Better to sacrifice a little freedom and live in purity than to have total freedom and hurt yourself and hurt other people through lust. Lust is essentially adultery. It's adultery in seed form. It's got all the same DNA. It just hasn't fully matured yet. All right. Well, that was easy. Uh, oh, I went backwards. Last thing that Jesus said that we're going to look at today. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity or infidelity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this is another situational statement. And I want to, I want to drill into what's the situation Jesus is addressing right now. Okay, 
Jesus is not primarily addressing remarriage because we know biblically that many types of remarriage are permissible are permissible if your spouse dies or something like that so so this is not a broad brush approach that all remarriage is bad okay uh, remarriage under certain circumstances is permitted so that's not the situation Jesus is addressing in this passage uh, this is also not the only passage about adultery uh, we know from two different places in the Old Testament that the punishment for adultery is death. Um, that you're to be stoned. In fact, we see this in John chapter 8. There's a woman who's caught in adultery, and uh, they bring her to Jesus and say, Jesus, doesn't the law say we're supposed to stone this woman? Well, this is a tense moment. And this is the famous passage where Jesus says, well, any of you without sin, go ahead and throw that first stone. And they all dropped their stones and left. And this, I love what Jesus said to her. It's, it's a two-pronged statement. He first says, does no one here condemn you? Then neither do I condemn you. But then he also says, now go and leave your life of sin. So he doesn't say, everything's fine. <laughs> he says, I'm not condemning you, but this behavior has to stop. And he, so he, he literally saves this woman's life. Now, there are some subtleties in that story that show us what was going on in the culture at the time. And I want to dig into the culture a little bit. This woman in John 8 was caught in adultery. Caught in the act of adultery. So where's the guy? Why didn't they bring him? To Jesus. Well, this might be hard for you to believe, but sometimes guys give other guys passes on things like that. And I don't know who this guy was. Maybe he was a Pharisee himself, but for some reason, the man was not held accountable, but she was. They caught her in the act, right? Did he jump out a window or what? You know, they should at least know his identity. The fact that they caught them in the act means probably someone was staking out the house with a private investigator or something like chiseling like Flintstones pictures um, that little detail shows us a little bit of what's going on in the culture at the time in that women were held severely responsible in those moments but men weren't so Matthew 5 is not the only time that divorce and remarriage is addressed by Jesus. And I actually think if we're going to have a full picture of this, we want to look at the other times that Jesus addresses this. So, later in Matthew, in chapter 19, there's a big old section. I just highlighted the relevant part here. Jesus says to them, because of, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Okay, wait, what? Let's back up. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. When did that happen? It's in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. That's when it was said. Because God made Adam and Eve to stay together in monogamous relationship forever in marriage. But Moses, in Deuteronomy 24, permitted divorce. Why did he permit divorce? Well, not because he thought it was a good thing, but because sometimes people's hearts are hard. So he permitted it. Now, hang with me through this whole thing here. He permitted it because of hardness of heart, but he didn't think it was great. In fact, I mean, in, in Malachi 4, God says, 
I hate divorce. And I'm like, me too. My parents are divorced. In fact, I don't know really anyone that says, yay, divorce. Right? I think anyone, whether you're a guilty party or an innocent party or a partly guilty party, partly innocent party, I don't know anyone that's signing up for that quick. I think generally everyone hates divorce. It's a painful experience. And so Moses wasn't blessing divorce, but he was permitting it. He was conceding divorce. And when he conceded divorce in Deuteronomy 24.1, the way that the law was written was if your wife, so only men generally, only men and rich women could divorce their spouses. The way the law was written was if, you, if there's any if there's something about your wife that's unfavorable, you may divorce her. And many of the rabbis that preceded Jesus interpreted that very loosely to this point where a rabbi, right before Jesus, there was a rabbi named Hillel who said, if your wife burned dinner, you could divorce her. Now, you guys know I'm not saying this. I'm not saying this. Okay, because some of you know where I live and I'm not really trying to get into that. Hillel said it. Find him. Hillel said, if your wife burns dinner, you can divorce her. <laughs> if she says something bad about your parents, you can divorce her. If you find someone more attractive, you can divorce your wife. So this is what was happening at the time. Okay, now Moses has permitted divorce. He's not happy about it, but he concedes divorce. These men, lust is not checked in their heart. Their eyes are wandering, and they come to this. This is the decision the men are making at this time. If I cheat on my wife, the penalty is death. But if I just divorce her and marry someone else, there's no penalty. And so men just whole scale started going through these easy divorces. This happened... Uh, in Malachi, it happened in Malachi, which is why God says, I hate divorce, and it was carrying over into this time. The men were trying to game the system. They were saying, okay, the punishment for adultery is death. I don't want that. I'm just going to easily divorce my wife and go get that other woman. And what Jesus is saying is, oh, you think you're avoiding adultery by doing that? If you divorce your wife for anything but infidelity, you're still committing adultery. If you drop her to go find a new wife immediately, you've left one to go find the other, that's still essentially adultery. That's the situation Jesus is speaking to right now. He's talking about people that dumped one spouse to immediately go to, into the arms of another person. That's the situation that Jesus is addressing. He's saying it's essentially adultery. Does that make sense? First yeah. Corinthians 7 talks about, I mean, this is a complicated topic, obviously. First Corinthians 7 talks about a believing spouse who has an unbelieving spouse. And if the unbelieving spouse leaves, the Christian is to let them go, and they are under, it says they are under no burden or no obligation, and they are permitted to remarry. And that, that's a situation people find themselves in. So when we read these passages on 
adultery, divorce, remarriage, anger. We want to make sure we're getting the right application to the right situation. Now, this has been a challenging week to put this together. Because my parents are divorced, and I witnessed firsthand how it works, and I remember many of the circumstances, though not all, and so my heart was very heavy as I looked into these passages. So I did my best for about a day to put my heart over here and just read the passage, find out what it says, grammar, history, literal, all that stuff. And then I picked my heart back up, put it in, like the Tin Man, and tried to understand how to apply this. So, a couple things. First, the situation that Jesus is addressing in Matthew 5 is, is not every divorce, it's spouses immediately dumping one person for the next one. That's the situation Jesus is addressing in this passage. When my parents were going through their divorce, my mom didn't know what to do. We were not Christians. We were not religious. We did not really attend church. So my mom was like, I guess we're going to church now. Because divorce is such a disorienting experience People need something to grab onto, and we chose, I can't even say we knew what we were choosing, we just threw it out there and tried to grab onto God, it, most, mostly my mom, to be honest. We started attending church. Um, I did not understand this at the time, but now, retroactively looking back on this, I realize how critical the response of that church was when we showed up, I'm, thir I'm 13 or 14, my brother's 12, you know, my, my mom is, she's not even divorced, she's going through the divorce. It's not even done. Our, that divorce took five years. I guess they wanted to know who got the trailer. Um, I hope they don't listen to this. <laughs> the way that church responded Again, I didn't know this at the time. I only know it now looking back. They could have either rejected us or embraced us. And they embraced us. In the midst of the darkest season of my mom's life, and one of the darkest of my life and my brother's life, they did not kick us to the curb. They did not make us feel less than. They did not treat us poorly. They welcomed us in and embraced us. And there's a couple things that happened during that season of my life that ultimately led to me following Jesus, but that's one of them, is <clears throat> the, I guess, embrace that we received in that moment when our family needed it. So, I know that not all churches respond to this issue the same, I want to make sure that we respond the way I received when I was, when my family was going through that. I want to make sure that people are welcomed, 
embraced. <laughs> if we start showing <laughs> people the door because of their junk, there's going to be none of us left. Except May. I mean, where do you draw the line, right? Which I think is actually one of the primary points Jesus is trying to make. You know, what's the penalty for murder? Death. And if you're angry at your brother, you're a murderer. What's the penalty for adultery? Death. And if you've lusted, you're an adulterer. Guys, we're all dead. Every one of us. <clears throat> we are equally condemned and therefore equally in need of a Savior. So there's no need to start ranking sins and sinners. <laughs> if you think that your anger is better off than someone's adultery, Go ahead and read this again. Amen. Right? It's not. So, I think what people are really longing for in churches is consistency. Believe what you're going to believe, but at least be consistent with it. If we're going to be consistent with the concept of grace and the gospel and redemption, we have to apply it everywhere. Not to... Um, only our stuff, but other people's stuff and other situations. Whew. Okay, I knew this was going to happen. I've been praying for a lot of you by name this week because I know you've been through this. <clears throat> so, here's how we're going to respond to this today. I've asked a few people to join me up front to pray for you if you would like to be prayed for. If you have an anger problem and you acknowledge it and it just simmers long term, doesn't get dealt with, and you would like to be prayed for, I, I'm going to have you come up in a moment and people are going to be willing to pray for you. If you have a, an issue with lust and you acknowledge it and, and maybe it's led to some addictions or maybe it's led to some behaviors that you're not, you don't want to continue, we're going to have people up here to pray for you. If you've been through divorce, or going through divorce, or your, you, your parents were divorced, and you're a kid of a divorce, and that's still an area of brokenness in your life, you can come and be prayed for too. Um, and we're just going to spend a little bit of time up front praying for whoever shows up. So I have John Eric and Emily Santiago are uh, willing, and Scott, can I put you on the on the hot seat, Scott's going to come up. And I'll stay up here too. So we're going to have a couple people up here. Come on up now so people know where to go. We have a couple people that you can be prayed for. So let me, let me pray for us and then I'm going to dismiss you while we pray with people up front. Feel free to hang out and linger. And uh, All right, you mind standing with me? Jesus, we bless you. Uh, I am so grateful, Jesus, for the way you taught. And the immediate response of the people that heard you was, wow, he teaches as one who has authority. And we still think your teaching has authority, Lord. 
We pray for healing in every area, anger, lust, marital strife and brokenness. Lord, give us healing and breakthrough in all of these areas. Lord, I pray as we go out this week, heal us from anger. Help us to walk in sexual purity. Restore families that have been uh, brought into chaos even or, or disturbed by brokenness from marital issues and divorce, Lord. You can do any of this. You protected people that were caught in adultery, even in the midst of confronting them, you protected them. You forgive, you restore, and you redeem. And we have expectation that you're going to do that today. And I pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen.